content warning, this is a big one. Sexual harassment, rape, heads being smashed in, abortion, and lots of profanity. Action! Excitement! Horror! Mads! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. dawned in 2022, it was all over. Peace in our time. Peace and tranquility and brotherly love reigned in full. La-dee-da. For two years and six months and three days. World War IV broke out on the 215th anniversary of the birth of Edgar Allan Poe, 19th of January, 2024. World War IV lasted five days, until the few remaining missiles that had jammed in their first strike release phase cleared their fully computerized silos beneath the painted desert, the Saharan Ahagars, the Rubalkali, the Siberian Plateau, and Pyongyang. But by then there wasn't much of anything left to fight over. Five days. Then what was left belonged to anyone who wanted it. Anybody with a taste for radiation and rubble. But it was a very different world, the survivors claimed. The good folks sank their caisson cities, their sterile down-unders, deep in the earth. And the snaggletooth remnants of the above-ground were abandoned to the new masters of desolation vicious rover packs of parentless young boys and their telepathic dogs. From the history of the world, as blood tells it. In the course of this podcast, we've tried to come at the history of genre fiction from odd angles and dug into the obscure stuff that sometimes gets overlooked, but there are figures that we've inevitably arrived at talking about simply due to their long shadows. Isaac Asimov, Jules Verne, John W. Campbell, J.R.R. Tolkien, and now it's time to talk about Harlan Ellison. If John W. Campbell oversaw the golden age of science fiction, Ellison is in large part responsible for what we might call the Silver Age, thanks mostly to a book he edited, Dangerous Visions, which we've mentioned before a few times, and which ties together most of the sci-fi writers of the 1960s and beyond. He's also one of science fiction's biggest personalities, a man who had an opinion, usually an angry one, on everything, and who dominated the fan community for decades in one way or another. He's written short stories, screenplays, episodes of television, essays, and reviews, though surprisingly his novels are usually considered to be some of the least influential part of his oeuvre. He also had one of the most eventful lives of any writer since Hemingway, having run away from home, joined a gang, driven a nitroglycerine truck, worked as a bodyguard, joined the army, marched with Martin Luther King, and supposedly threatened the life of an editor with a hitman and a dead gopher, among others. He's also, to put it mildly, a contentious figure. To put it less mildly, he was a raving a-hole. Today we're going to look at one of his more impactful works of fiction, the post-apocalyptic novella A Boy and His Dog, and I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of nasty things to say about Harlan Ellison along the way, but that's about par for the course. I'm Adam Prosser, and this is What Mad Universe. Uh, with me, as always, is Philip Rice. Hello. Hello. And uh, we have a guest today, uh, our friend uh, James Ng, Riley English. Hello. Good to be back. Yeah, good to see you here. And uh, as I said, we're talking about A Boy and His Dog, which is easily the shortest thing we've reviewed for this or, or discussed on this show, uh, because as I said, Ellison's novels aren't really seen as fundamental to his work uh, as much as his short stories are. So this is, uh, uh, it was a short story, it was blown up into a novella, and it was um, turned eventually into a movie. Ellison kept working on it, adding other short stories and supposedly a screenplay that he wanted to turn. I believe it was adapted into graphic novels. Uh, and uh, it was never really finished uh, before he died. Uh, but uh, so that's, that's, that's uh, 
probably a good window into his work, but I think we're probably going to talk about a lot of his other stories and a lot of his other, his other works, uh, over the course of this. Um, I, uh, I know that <laughs> neither of you guys like this story very much. It's very interesting because I, uh, have liked a lot of what Ellison's written in the past, and this is by far my least favorite thing he's written, and not what I, and it's very interesting that this was clearly, like, a big passion to keep working at, because it's not the one that I would point as indicative of his work. Yeah, yeah, and... Um, yeah, this is, um, actually sort of my first direct exposure to his writing beyond the Star Trek episode, uh, which apparently is... Well, we'll get to that. Yeah. But um, I, I had um, heard of Ellison vaguely uh, as a when I was young. I think uh, Freakazoid referenced him obliquely, um, like just a fanboy, the character fanboy. He was. I was talking to Harlan on the internet. Um, um, so uh, then uh, the first time I definitely heard about him was the. Uh, event uh at the hugo awards in uh, uh what year was that 2007 i think uh six yeah 2006 where he uh groped uh writer connie uh connie willis uh on stage uh on video and uh she was not happy about it and um it, it caused uh yeah, a lot of controversy there, uh, and that seems to be pretty indicative of Ellison in general. Controversy, that is. Yeah, Robert Block, uh, who wrote Psycho and worked with him on Star Trek and some other places, um, he actually, he's famously said, Ellison uh, is the only organism I've ever encountered whose natural habitat is hot water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that is definitely true. He was a guy who liked to pick fights a lot. Um, it's... It's definitely funny that, um, you know, he's he wasn't around, like, the, he, he died in 2018, so he's, he's, he's only passed on recently, but um, he would be talking about, like, cancel culture if he was around right now, he'd be, yeah. he'd be raving about it, uh, and the more so, and it, it, it's, it's very funny because, or it's not funny, but it's also... It, I mean, th this is gonna be weird, because I don't know if I could say that definitively, because Ellison often had politics that a lot of us would agree with. Oh, 100%. Uh, things that thought he was good, even with him not living up to them and being a raging jackass. Well, yeah, that absolutely sums him up. He was a guy who had all the right principles on paper. And he's much easier to read, like his fiction is way easier to read than his nonfiction, because his nonfiction is his, un or let alone to watch like a, a video clip of him or whatever, because his nonfiction is him just unfiltered, whereas fiction is him like thoughtfully trying to make arguments and so on. And I mean, <laughs> now we're talking about this book, which we all didn't feel that way about. But I mean, he, 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 he had all the right ideas. His heart was clearly in the right place almost the entire time. But then he, the rest of him got in the way very badly. And yeah. it, it he he um it's but it is worth noting that in the last sort of 20 30 years he did start raving against political correctness and talking about how much he hated that and how oh you know people don't understand depth and they're only super like so the criticism of this book which we are likely to be leveling at it <laughs> he he was like he got it right away like in the 70s he had college students which he raved about how they they didn't understand the work yeah. and they were you know they were too too dense to get it because they were such babies and they didn't understand it yeah it just judging how he would fall on some political issues is one that i think is hard to say yeah because it does come of course what i think are uh, to speak favorably of the dead, the two motivating factors of his life, which was uh, some sense of, like, very firm and certain uh, morality and ethics, and the other one of an absolutely uncontrollable ego. Yeah, yeah. He, he wanted... Uh, he... Go ahead. Which also is very close to how he describes uh, himself in an introduction to a collection that I wrote, uh, that I read. Uh, that I uh, read a point his dog through, 
Uh, should we explain what a boy and his dog is before we get into yeah, okay. the analysis and casting judgment? Yeah. So, in the post-apocalyptic wasteland, Vic, sometimes called Albert, by his psychic dog, Blood, for reasons that we can only assume is that Blood was a fan of Twin Peaks, <laughs> um, is... Uh, Basically, a raider living in the bombed-out, irradiated ruins who spends his time with blood scavenging for food and looking for, uh, well, and no other way to put it, women to rape, females to have Congress with, their consent be damned, and this is the normal status quo of this world. He finds one such, uh individual masquerading as a man on the surface, identifying her as somebody from uh, down below a submerged sort of hermetically sealed environment that preserves pre-war way of life uh, follows her, rapes her, and then there is a standoff with some other raiders that want to rape her into which he rescues her from but is knocked unconscious by her and leaves only to find that she has left a key card to her home in the underground. He follows her against Blood's request since Blood has been injured in the previous fight and follows her down into the underground where her father informs her that she, her job was to lure somebody like him down to act as breeding stock because they're having basically a genetic bottleneck trouble. He lives some time with them and immediately just gets bored by the peaceful lifestyle and conspires with her to kill her father and most of the other people in the town and then escape to the surface. She actually goes along with this really well and just, like, goes absolutely haymaker shooting old people and stuff. <laughs> Um, they get to the surface where it's unclear how long it has been, but blood is apparently on death's door and desperately needs medical treatment and food. And Vic makes the decision to kill the girl and feed her to Vic to save his dog. And er, that's blood. the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Feed yeah. her to, to blood. Yeah. Feed um, her to blood. Yeah. And, and that's the end. Yeah. And we never get a clear description about what kind of dog blood was, but he must be a sheepdog because he sure was shaggy. <laughs> yeah, uh, there was a movie adaptation of this uh, that's um, fairly close to that in, in plot. Like, um, it follows it almost exactly. It, it makes some changes that are actually for the positive. Like, the depiction of the Down Under is more of a dystopian hellscape rather than just boring suburban people like it's it's clearly a um heightened um yeah authoritarian uh, like, kind of place. yeah authoritarian yeah. parody of like everybody wears like really white makeup on their faces um in like uh and the whole thing's just an exaggerated version of uh america you know traditional americana they disappear fe people for uh disobeying the rules and stuff and um in the movie uh, the girl, uh, uh, she was uh, had the job to, to get him down there, but she was also planning on uh, run, uh, using him to uh, stage a coup to take over the area. So that's, um, she was more scheming in the movie than just sort of a passive character she is in the story. Um, and I, I thought that, that sort of worked, giving her actual, like, somewhat sensible motivations. Like, she clearly doesn't like him, but... Uh, yeah. She's willing to uh, use him to um, get her ends because she's in a terrible situation as well. Um, and uh, also that uh, him is breeding. It's clearly that in the movie that this has been done before and they just set him up with a machine to extract his sperm. So yeah, he's not actually but, having sex with the girls. Yeah, that was actually one of the better gags in the movie and it's just like he's like oh this is great okay i'll be a i'll be a stud i'll have all these women and then he's like strapped into a extraction machine immediately and it's not in, in any way pleasant or or cool for him yeah on the other hand the movie also is has a lot of the same problems as the book like i think those elements are an improvement they make that part make more sense but it also has the same sort of well the the rape plot 
the th- fact that the whole movie is hinged on a on a rapist and I'm not necessarily against that. I mean, Clockwork Orange works fine, but I don't know. It's just there's something about it that doesn't work here uh, in the well, book or the movie. Well, for me. okay. So, so the book is very ex or the story is very explicitly about like struggling with adolescence, but through an extremely misanthropic filter, as Ellison himself was very clear on. He did. It was sort of his his very dim view of humanity at the time when he wrote the book, which was uh 69 or 70 i'm not 100 percent sure on the exact date um and and as uh i'll I'll let ing tell it later but he was definitely extremely extremely misanthropic and he wanted to just write a story where basically everyone's a whole a huge bastard including the main character and even a dog (laughs) is a huge bastard as as we pointed out um but um who can talk by the way dogs can talk because they were genetically modified before the war uh and so they can telepathically bond with uh what the, what are called rovers um and and vic has got an affinity with blood that's 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 why so it becomes a very warped uh, calvin and hobbs kind of relationship because the blood the dog oh, is don't ruin calvin and hobbs like that <laughs> sorry but that is very much what springs to mind when you read it because blood is the more intelligent sophisticated one and in the two some of the story there there's two stories that i read that are tied in and they're actually from blood's point of view and they make it very clear that he's trying to get vic to basically grow up he wants vic to become like a decent human being um but he's like he's doing it very gently and like not trying to you know he needs him he needs to rely on him so he can't uh tick him off too much but he's trying to sort of he's well boy that doesn't come through in the first story yeah it's 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 uh, like that's what blood thinks he's doing anyway he thinks i mean they do say that he's he's trying to teach him to like he taught him to read and trying to teach him to you know uh, to know things about the world history yeah yeah Um, and i mean yeah he also scouts out women for him to rape uh, i mean absolutely i mean it's 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 very much <laughs> there. There are some. I guess the argument is just that they live in this absolute, you know, uh, do, so to speak, dog eat dog world where there's no, you know, you just have to go along to get along, and there's no easy moral choices. Basically, uh, the it, it, the later stories, like he was going to be about their journey. They were going to continue west. They talk about uh, over the hill, the place. The, there's some fabled place out in the west, I believe which uh, presumably in the former California where they could head and, and, uh, and, and they'll, they'll actually be a, a nicer civilization and presumably better than the down under, like an actual human way of life that they could get to. And that's kind of, that's the journey that Vic is, that was the intention that like Vic would be going on that. But uh, no, it's not in the story at all. But it it doesn't come through because basically, at least in the short story version the depiction of the down under is just basically pre-war life, like maybe a bit too excessively 1950s, like that's idealized, but it's a functional society. Yeah. Compared to above, above, and Vic explicitly rejects that for being boring. Yeah. Despite the fact that it, that there's no hint of like any actual totalitar- totalitarian restrictions on him, other than sort of an expectation that he abide by uh, basic decency and he doesn't have to scavenge for resources. Things are plentiful. It's a very strange thing from apocalypse literature, how we're used to. Like, you could see Mad Max gets into this sort of thing. He'd be happy there, but there would be some reveal that there's, like, a dark... Uh, there would be a soyant green twist or something that would make it that you would have to leave there that you couldn't comfortably live in this place once you know the truth. But there's none of that there. And in, instead, he uses uh, a, a woman's exposed vagina as a distraction to kill her father yeah. brutally with a pipe. So, yeah, he it's it's I think I'm sorry with a bed po- with the top of a bedpost. Right. Socks bedpost jams and jammed in a sock. He hits him with. But it, yeah. but but yeah, it's I think the, the idea is just that the fact that it is late 60s, early 70s writing, the fact that it's like Squaresville man is supposed to kind of do the to do the heavy lifting and making the audience go, yeah, this is a bad place, man. This is not where you want to be. Uh, you know, it's sterile and dead, you know, that kind of thing. But it doesn't 
it just doesn't do a good job with that in the movie in that aspect at least actually establishes that this is a bad place to be right yeah it's it's i i don't that's an interesting question to me because we've already covered like canical Leibowitz, which was the 50s um so post-apocalyptic literature of course was a, had been a thing for quite a while i mean the cold war had been going on for you know 25 years at that point at least um but the degree to which this exact kind of absolute savagery and like horrible warped satire of of uh american civilization and you know the way that it's oh it's it's either savagery or these these horrible dystopias that have clung on to some semblance of thing like i don't know if this is actually original to this story or if it had been done before i think i don't think ellison was the first one to do that kind of thing um but if it, it's definitely one of the first ones like i i definitely see the influence of this on the fallout games for instance like, yes it's definitely a popularizer like i said the down unders are very close to being uh the idea that uh would become the vaults in fallout yeah yeah the, 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 i haven't even played fallout and i can see that i can see the connection there and there's a there yeah and in every fallout game there's a dog companion uh, oh okay well there you go yeah that specifically references none of them have been psychic or able to communicate so far hmm. and they've all been a lot better dogs than blood <laughs> is yeah yeah well you can see the yeah and that and you know we talk about like zombie movies as being this like things like the walking dead and a lot of criticism has been thrown in the last decade or so over the idea that it's it's romanticizing the apocalypse and you know, this isn't a zombie story, but it's got that aspect to it very strongly. Um, like, you can definitely point to... And that's a reasonable criticism I think you can point at. And like I say, when it's called misogynist, like, Ellison defended himself very strongly. He said, no, 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 I'm, I'm not a misogynist. I'm a myth misanthrope. I hate everyone equally. But it doesn't treat Quilla June, the female character, the same way it treats Vic. Like... You can absolutely agree Vic is a horrible monster of a human being, but he's the protagonist and you're in his head. He's a character. Yeah. He's the one you're 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 seeing everything through the viewpoint of, with the idea of that maybe someday he'll find redemption and all that kind of stuff. And he's a fully formed human. Whereas Kula June is just like everything bad you want to say about girls, like an incel would say about girls, could apply to her. She's manipulative and she's like and it's it's oh but and she liked it after i raped her and like like that's one some, one something that happened and you know oh and she's actually secretly a psycho who kills her parents and like just everything about her is just really bad a very very bad male view of 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 women um so it's not hard to and again like yes i know he's wallowing in all the worst traits of humanity but he's doing it in a different way for women and unfortunately throughout ellison's work um he's never had the best view of women i think that's something you can definitely point to in his work yeah yeah uh, um um yeah uh this is my first time actually sitting down to reading a uh, ellison story uh like i said my first real exposure to him was him groping a woman on stage and that sort of tends to sour you on somebody's work um immediately um so i never really sought it out uh, I was aware of I Have No Mouth, But I Must Scream, so I decided to also check that one out and uh, a few other things. Um, that is a much better story than this, in my opinion, though it also has some, um, I think, uh, issues with the female character in it. Um, yeah. Um, although I, I think that's more justifiable in that story, the way it's um, explicitly structured as the main character his misogyny is an example of him breaking down over over time. Like there's a there's a bit where he, he talks about how she you know she's got four men that that uh, that she has sex with, so she's like having the time of her life. And like I doubt it, but uh, at yeah. the same time, this is clearly an unreliable yeah, narrator. Yeah, explicitly all no, because she's uh, this character in technically more of like actual inflicting sexual violence at a woman for punishment the uh the plot of i have no mouth and i must scream is that an malevolent ai with godlike powers has killed the entire human race save for five people that it keeps around 
for the sake of having somebody to torture. And uh, Ellie, the woman there, uh, one of her punishment is that uh, the AI has manipulated her biological libido to nymphomania because she did not like having sex prior. And now she has a compulsion to do so. And, like, as a related punishment, there's Benny, who was a homosexual before, who has been uh, chemically altered to be heterosexual as a punishment for him. Yeah, which is interesting, uh, in some ways. <laughs> but, yeah, so, like, there's there's definite uh, things you could raise as questions there, but it works better as in the story. As like, it is, um, does also come out as that this is the bastard thing an absolutely evil antagonist is yeah doing. yeah well and, and that's and even there's... I mean that's weirdly sympathetic to you know homosexual character in again like seven, the 70s or, or whenever he wrote that story like that's that is pretty ahead of its time to a, to be capable of that level of empathy to see that that would be horrible right <laughs> instead of just writing it you know uh, yeah yeah like and it's still not it's still not a nice thing to read about but it's not it's kind also, uh, Ellie is is black, I believe. She's described yeah. as having um, dark skin. Yeah. So, um, and ag again, it's like her role in the story isn't as a black woman; it's as a woman. So that's yeah. I don't know, progressive ish. I don't know. <laughs> well, this is the thing about Ellison. Like he was, he was this uh, virulently. He was very open, very la uh, you know, outspokenly outspoken about everything. Uh, he was outspokenly uh, pro-choice. Uh, but he wrote a story called Croatoan about uh, the, uh, you know, uh, abortions that get flushed down the toilet that gathered and, and you know, built a society down there, which can be very easily read as pro-life uh, to the point where Stephen King actually pointed out in Dance Mac Macabre, if you've ever read that book, uh, he points out that, you know, I don't know if Ellison really is pro-life. He says he's pro-choice. He says he's pro-choice, but this is such a, you know, this story, wow. And and there's a lot of that in his stuff where, like, if you wanted to, you could see a discrepancy between his stated political... But you have to go with his stated political opinions. Um, you know, it, it's worth noting that the Connie Willis incident, he was friends with her. Like, they were, they were good friends right up until that incident. And after that, they had a falling out, basically. Um, and he that's even, still you can you can grope your friend. I mean, that's well, this, not, he, yeah, yeah, after that's after that, he literally he he wrote an apology that was actually a pretty good apology, where he's like, "That was not okay. I should not have done that. It's absolutely inexcusable." And I beg for you know, I fall on the mercy of Connie Willis or whatever. She didn't immediately forgive him. And then he got all snippy and f***y about it. And I I feel like that... Which is a red flag in it. Oh, I mean, groping somebody is the red flag. But, like, yeah. that's... I think yeah. that's a problem as well. Like, yeah, it, nobody's obligated to take your apology. Right. That sums him up, I think. He, he had the right idea up until it interfered with his ego even a little bit. And then he be, just became... A, a, a horrible horrible about it at, at any given point and like that's the, the whole thing with the political correctness too because he railed against political correctness in the 90s and early 2000s and that's weird from a guy who like marched with martin luther king but it was again it's the point of like oh i you should have empathy for everyone you should be you know blah blah, blah up and you should be anti-racist and anti-sexist but don't tell me what i can't write though you know if like don't don't get in the way of what i'm doing and then it well, becomes and bad. In a, mi in a minor sense of it, like I'm gonna wind up having to play f***ing uh, devil's holes advocate a lot. Um, and I, wa I wanted to get out there. It's a thing. It said, but uh, what was considered political correctness in the '90s and early 2000s isn't how the term is used now. Like. George Carlin had things against political correctness, but he made it clear that his opposition to it were things like uh, whitewashing history and things like like political correctness for George Carlin is saying the war against the states rather than the Civil War or saying that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. It's being euphemistic about things to avoid... Uh, offense yeah but it's not how it's meant right. now right which is like you know to consider whether you're offending people and uh, at the risk of offending people some more uh it's time to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors we'll be right back after this
We're the Spirit Hunters, and we're a show that treats Hunter Hunter and Yu Hakusho's author as the center of the universe. Some weeks, we do linguistic analysis. So the Chinese meaning of this character is to smelt or refine, but so the changed meaning in Japanese, it means to temper. Other times, we get absolutely smashed. So we take one shot every time. Yusuke uses the ray gun. One hour later. This is the least coherent episode. Oh, Sarah, oh, you I think your apartment is you can find out more about the Spirit Hunters right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Previously in Zelda 2 on Chat of the Wild. Until you get to the elevator. Come on, I'm like, stay away from me, you little flamies. <laughs> he just chases you. I'm like, uh, I'm like, run, 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 run. I love that. I love that idea. It's like we have this whole grand adventure, where we're building ourselves up, and every time we get into power, it's like, oh god, oh god, oh god, it's like just running through. <laughs> That's Chat of the Wild Wednesdays on the Greenlit Podcast Network. things you could say about this story like he's kind of i mean i have literary critiques on this story too which is why i felt that i actually think that ellison is good when it comes to like the craft of writing he's very good at uh putting words together and writing uh rhetoric and painting mind pictures painting his word pictures and this one felt very inferior to me um, yeah, I, yeah. I, having having now read some of his other stuff, uh, yeah, this is this is bottom of the barrel for. Like, I absolutely would recommend instead uh, "Repent Harlequin," said the TikTok man, because yeah. it's a much more fun story. Right. It, it has like similar themes, like with dystopia. It's a lot more, I guess, like morality lesson for it, but it's more of like a very fun. And very surreal Twilight Zone episode. Uh, speaking of, he wrote some episodes of The Outer Limits, which yep, I right. watched, uh, including an episode called Soldier, which establishes that in the future they have psychic cats that act as, as scouts. So <laughs> that's obviously a theme that he he liked. <laughs> right, and it's about a post-apocalyptic uh, war or an, or an yeah. apocalyptic war. And uh, it's cool. yeah, several thousand, many thousands of years in the future. Uh, and it's a soldier that's been bred for for fighting, and he accidentally gets sent back in time, and he has to uh, learn to um, uh, adapt to modern society. Um, but he eventually uh, starts to get stir-crazy, and he steals a gun. But then another soldier from his time, an enemy, shows up, and they fight, and they both disappear back into the future, and that's... And it's left on an ambiguous note whether he was trying to protect his friends or whether he was just uh, going back into his uh, programming to kill right. the enemy. And um, and yeah, go ahead. yeah, it was it was it was good. Uh, there's also another one he wrote called uh, "Demon with a Glass Hand," which had similar time travel things and uh, cyborg character and. Yeah, both of these were uh, big influences on the Terminator movies. Yeah, and and I have no mouth and I have a scream is also very likely the origin of Skynet, even though it's never been that one. He didn't specifically link to uh, the Terminator. What what happened is that L- uh, James Cameron actually flat out said in an interview, "Yeah, I was heavily inspired by uh, Twilight of Stone." He he specifically pointed to Soldier. Uh, but demon with a glass hand, and I have no weapon. I was. I actually have to jump in and correct you. What he said that got him in hot water is that he phrased it as, "Yeah, I ripped off a bunch <laughs> yeah. of Brian Ellison stories." <laughs> yes, he was pretty. Which is about possibly it. the worst way you could have phrased it. <laughs> yeah, because Ellison was very litigious. He sued people a lot. Uh, for like even appearing to sort of use his words, but you know he had a pretty open and shut case in that example because Cameron did not was not uh, was not shy about saying that he'd he'd taken from it. And it is worth noting that like Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man uh, was very definitely an influence on V for Vendetta. Um, again, oh yeah, Alan Moore oh, yeah. basically I, said I didn't that. even think of that. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I was just saying, it's basically a dystopian superhero story. Like, the Harlequin is a superhero, essentially. Like, he's got a masked yeah. identity, and he, you know, he's... Yeah, and he's fighting a, the, a authoritarian he, regime yeah. in, 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 yeah, the, with nonsense, the same way V for Vendetta does. Part of it is a th- ambloyant uh, masked character 
uh, commits acts of civil disobedience to progress the extreme authoritarian government. Yeah, yeah, and and it's like Alan Moore again. He was he wrote it in the in the in the notes to V for Vendetta. You can see he literally says, "Yeah, repent, Harlequin said the TikTok man is going to be one of my influences for this story." So again, I mean, I'm, I don't know if Ellison sued him, <laughs> but that, uh, that at well, least probably that... not because he didn't phrase it as I ripped him off. <laughs> but yeah, he he tend he did tend to to do that. But I mean, he's and I mean the thing about Ellison is that after he sued James Cameron and got his name on the movie, he then went around and said. Oh, the Terminator's a great movie, though. I loved it. It was great. I just, I wanted to get paid from it, basically. <laughs> yeah, I, I should say, I, I don't, I like both V for Vendetta, the book, and the Terminator. I haven't seen V for Vendetta, the movie yet, but uh, um, I, I like both of those, and I, I don't think that they, um, like, ripped off might be the wrong word for to use, especially from James Cameron. Uh, yeah, well, he's, I, I'd his say, word. <laughs> That's what yeah, he said. Yeah, I... Yeah, it was a bad idea to say that. <laughs> uh, there's actually another uh, incident where um, the episode, the, the, again, the story Soldier um, was basically lifted almost directly by, uh, I think it was Mark Grunewald, and put into a Hulk comic, uh, an Incredible Hulk comic. Uh, Ellison has also written some comics, by the way. Uh, and uh, he, um, he, uh, he basically did that story as an issue of the Incredible Hulk. Um, he more or less admitted it, I think. Um, and Ellison found out and kind of stormed in and to uh, Jim Shooter, who was the editor at the time, the Marvel editor-in-chief. And uh, apparently Shooter got him to kind of calm down a bit and acknowledge. And what happened was that Ellison ended up demanding to get paid, but only the same amount that the writer of the issue got paid and that he wanted to be credited for it. That's all he asked for, basically. So I think credit is almost more important for him than getting Hey, I mean, he wants to get paid too. He wants to make. Wow, well, Jim Shooter a... was able to calm somebody down. Jim Shooter. <laughs> I That's think Shooter amazing. might be a little underrated on that regard. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> There's a good documentary do about Harlan Ellison done. Yeah. Uh, what while he was uh, live, and it gives like in the defense there, Harlan Ellison was very litigious about protecting, uh, his right to be paid. And to be credited, but it is also part of a, a principle of it, and he was a big advocate, basically, for freelancers' rights, where it came down from it. Right. Like, he coined the phrase, f*** you, pay me. Yeah. The what? From Goodfellas? <laughs> it, it, well, no, in terms as like, a mantra for uh, artists and writing. Like, it, yeah, like, it came from elsewhere, but he's like, that, he said, that's the, that should be your, that was, his advice to aspiring artists is that F you pay me should be the mantra for anything don't because the basically the capital part of it is going to exploit any goodwill and is not going to give you anything for free yeah, yeah he was a huge really... huge union guy he was he was yeah. big in the writers guild and and yeah he was a big he was i remember in the uh the big, uh, the big writers' uh, lockout that happened in two thousand eight or thereabouts. Um, there was two thousand six, maybe. There was a, the big writers' strike in Hollywood for a while, and uh, he was the one. Most people were fairly happy with how it ended up, and Ellison was just like, "No, this is a deal. This is terrible. We didn't get any. We didn't get what we needed. This is bad for many, many reasons, and so on." Maybe time will prove him right. It's funny because you know I think a lot of people were just glad it was over and they could get back to work. And Ellison's the one who, like, he would have just fought to the ends of the earth to get yeah. what he thought he deserved and most people were just like let's end it please anyway it it's weird because part of the thing of saying it's like hey when you stand up for yourself people see you as people will frame you as an asshole and pushy and that's part of ellison but he was also even by his own admission actually an asshole on many things right um it it it's probably worth pointing out, which might explain, not excuse, but explain things, that the man was like 70 when he was finally diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which, looking back on a lot of things, kind of makes sense because Ellison will write about stuff and then write about how, like, basically he's an asshole who knows that he's going to do something stupid or wrong because he's offended or for the sake of ego, but he's unable to help himself because it's his nature. It's like, yeah, that that makes sense looking at it now with somebody struggling with a, a mental 
illness. Yeah, that that but... sums him up a hundred percent because, like, he's like in a boy and his dog. A lot of his protagonists, a boy and his dog. It's semi-autobiographical to a certain degree, even if it's writing about all the Hopefully worst. Hopefully not. <laughs> no, I mean, well, here's the thing: he was in a gang when he was younger, according yeah. to him. Uh, he did. Uh, he may have done some bad stuff in the gang. It's it's not a, entirely clear. Um, and uh, you know, of course, he was literally writing it about his his own pet dog. And so, I mean, in in a way, I think Vic and Blood are kind of his like his evil selves of himself and his dog i guess um his is is negative but it was very clearly as well like it's 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 allison was married five times by the way um and most of the marriages were pretty short and this is the work of someone who'd just been through a bad breakup like there's no getting around it that that's you can read it very much as like you know ah women ah I'm, i'd rather be with my dog like that's that's how it play. That that how it feels is the subtext. Like you can see that as oh, pretty he, much text. Something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the last line now, is um, yeah. Now there's uh, another element to it that I read. Yeah, there's like death of the author, but apparently because Ellison insists on inserting himself so much into everything, we have to <laughs> ironically, even when bashing him, think deeply about well, what was Ellison thinking at the time? Um, uh, I read, uh, Boy and His Dog in the collection, The Beast Who Screamed, uh, Love, and it includes an introduction essay about it in 1974, and then a response to that from Ellison in 1984. And 1974, which he seems to match his opinion when he was writing A Boy and His Dog, is somebody who in his own words had given up on the concept of revolution and saving humanity and at this point thought humanity was absolutely irredeemable and doomed to destroy himself and he was glad they were all gonna kill themselves either by uh, pollution or disease or nuclear armageddon and he was the only bad thing about that is that they were taking him with them so in that sight the boy and his dog really seems like at least part of it is like this is what you look like this is what you sound like uh which yeah it like if, juvenile is a big way to describe a boy of his dog in a lot of ways absolutely yeah it's the edgy it really stuff fit, a lot yeah, of people feels would like, have written when they were 13 yeah yeah it's very edgelordy it's very um yeah yeah like um you can tell stories with these kinds of themes even this kind of character and not have it come across as like like the clockwork orange movie like you know i'm not saying it's perfect but like it it does it a lot better yeah and a clockwork orange even the horrible people clearly have some sort of internal life and belief that you can follow and deduce from what the film gives you so everyone has a reason for what they're doing even if they're absolutely awful or selfish so much of this didn't like felt like people were awful without any motivation yeah yeah well i think and that's... um also uh on a yeah like mad max fury road is a movie a post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic movie about rape basically but it doesn't show it like it doesn't dwell in it like um yeah it's not even uh, implied, like, we know that happens, but it doesn't, like, force us to watch it happen, and I think that's, um, that's part of it, like, the, um, uh, what's that, uh, the Thermian argument video from Dan Olson about, um, you know, a, a hypothetical book called, uh, uh, Orcs Rape People, you know, like, about orcs raping people and how that's perfectly fine because in universe uh orcs are uh uh required you know like yeah and like yeah but you don't have to like you make the choice to do that right i mean as a writer like you make a choice to to dwell on certain things rather than other things yeah and you know what it it's not even necessarily a wrong choice to have that sort of thing there because one of my favorite uh manga is berserk and it has a lot of that but i know like it 
and people are free to like disagree if they hate it because of that reason that's perfectly fair but i know like a lot of other people who are also sexual abuse survivors wind up liking berserk because even though it has that it has like an authentic authenticity and weight to some of it people. yeah, yeah. Ab absolutely i mean that is like that there is absolutely a difference there and this is 100 percent the era like the 60s were the era of you know these brash young and ellison is absolutely one of the emblematic writers of that who are just blasting through all of the the mores the of, of of polite civilization and just trying to get at the grit and the grittiness and the horribleness of everything that you know because the 50s were so repressed everyone was so polite and wouldn't wouldn't address some of the horrible that was going on so you know they had a, the, a generation of writers where the pendulum swung back the other way really hard and they had to really rub it in your face how nasty everything was and how horrible it was and it was you know it was a dam breaking and there's a there's a validity to that but they were using some of the nastiness that anyone would reasonably say oh yeah rape is horrible and but they were using that as you know an excuse to as as we say to shock people out rather than dealing with it in, in an empathic way um, and that's, that's, I think, what this story fell afoul of. And I think Ellison is, in other stories, he's better at that. He doesn't do it as much. But it's here it's rape as a way of just shock the normies rather than to actually deal yeah. with rape as a thing, right? Like, so. like as we mentioned, she like, uh, you know, she's pretending because she's trying to lure him down. But still, the, the line, she actually liked it after a while is... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's 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 a whole other thing on top of it. Like, even if she hadn't, it it raises that issue of like, you know, well, we're shocking. Just as the whole sense of nuclear apocalypse, in that sense, is is done to uh, to you know to to shock you and to make and and human beings just be like the fact that the main character is supposed to be fifteen years old and he's this like violent hunter killer amoral psychopath or sociopath, I guess. Um, like that's meant to be shocking. It's meant to be like, oh my god, what have we fallen to? What is what has become of the human race? I think it's significant that um, uh, he did want to keep working on it because of that. I think he wanted to to evolve in the same way that he wanted it to evolve in the same way that he evolved a bit. Because as you what you were saying about um, about he he wrote the follow up to that essay like ten years later, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, the follow-up where I got there, where it's this very, uh, it's a very well-written essay, and it it basically is making, like, a moral argument for nihilism, <laughs> for why it's a good thing that everyone should die, uh, and doesn't, and does a better job than you'd think that it could be, but yeah, Ellison is very much a doomer. Uh, the follow-up essay was pretty much Ellison going, it's like, I'm surprised to be ten years later, and able to give a response to this so uh well i guess we'll see what happened i don't disagree with like what i said or what i was feeling but i'm older and it's 10 years later i guess we're gonna see what happens yeah i'm reminded of what happened with alan moore he wrote about watchmen he said you know i was in a bad mood when i wrote watchmen i didn't intend for the entire comics industry to be infected by my bad mood for the next decade and i think there's something you know you could say about science fiction with ellison something similar although he wasn't he didn't single-handedly transform the genre in that way but there was an element of that i think going into uh, uh going into also the uh wanted uh wasn't able to work this in when it was more appropriate but we were talking about his uh purse you know his knowing that he was a bad person and still doing it anyway and that in some ways for me that kind of makes it worse that's like uh louis ck's routine you know comedy routines about how he's a bad person and stuff and then you find out he's been you know sexually assaulting women on the regular um uh, well like the fact that you know that this is wrong kind of makes it worse i know in ellison's case there's a bipolar element yeah an undiagnosed bipolar element but a lot of bipolar people don't do that or most don't you know I don't know. And I, will... yeah, I guess I, I have more sympathy uh, for somebody who spent a lot of their adult life um, not being aware that stuff, emotional issues they struggled with are um, not, not a problem, but are 
uh, based on a condition they have and like that they're not alone and not unseen for going with it for struggling with that because even just knowing that this is a thing that occurs and it's not that you're entirely broken changes a lot of how you can deal with it I, I yeah. can sympathize. I was I was diagnosed yeah. with autism fairly late because Asperger's wasn't really uh, diagnosed when I was a, a kid, so I wasn't um, uh, diagnosed till in my teens. So I, I had to struggle through school a lot, not knowing um, what what exactly was you know wrong with how I interacted with the world and the world interacted with me and stuff. Um, so I, I can sympathize on some levels, but at the same time, he was a real jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and um, it, it's part of the thing that, like, if you get to Ellison as a teen, it's a thing that it's really easy to be swept up in, like, hey, yeah, somebody who, like, stands up to their boss and, like, mails them a dead gopher. <laughs> and shit, that that's like, oh, hell, shit, yeah, that that's a cool guy. But it's also being as a bit of an adult looking there. It's like, well, Ellison uh, had a very successful career, which is very impressive. He also missed a ton of opportunities because he didn't handle things. Well. Yeah, it's worth noting that he wrote a bunch of screenplays, including famously the Star Trek episode. Uh, and even the Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever, was rewritten. Although that was a thing that happened with Gene Roddenberry, which is a whole other thing. Uh, but... He wrote a, uh, a a TV movie. When egos collide there. Yeah. Well, well. In that case, I don't even know if he and Roddenberry butted heads specifically, but certainly the production, the producers of Star Trek didn't like him very much. Um, but they, and then he wrote uh, a sequel to. There was a movie called uh, Our Man Flint, a TV movie that was kind of a James Bond thing. He wrote the sequel to it, the first draft of it. He got booted, and a lot of people felt that his scrap his script was superior to what got on the screen but they couldn't stand him so they booted him uh he he was he pitched a tv series called the star lost which sounds like it really would have been cool uh but you know and again he had problems with you know hollywood bubbleheads in his mind uh he was fired from disney after a day for suggesting a they make a pornographic uh movie with mickey mouse although that was a, a joke in the cafeteria but still they overheard him and <laughs> and sacked him uh he apparently uh told the head of warner brothers uh production that he had the brains of an artichoke which prevented his script for i robot isaac asimov's i robot from getting made even though everyone said that it was like their best version of that script they could have gotten made yeah uh, so the full story behind that is worth telling because while he was meeting with an executive uh Ellison started to suspect that this guy was blowing smoke up there because he was really enthusiastic about the project, but Ellison started to suspect that he had never read the script. Right. And Ellison started making up details that were in the script and asking him about it. And it became clear that indeed this guy really was just like, had not read the script at all and was about to hand them like a big budget on something that he hadn't even glanced over. And Ellison kind of blew up at him for, and his friend rightfully pointed out later that you that that was the dumbest fucking mistake he could have made because he just blew basically having carte blanche on the project because the guy hadn't read the script and it's like who gives a shit? he's not the creative person anymore. yeah right right all we want him to do is sign off and give the money yeah 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 exactly. that's really self-defeating i was thinking that as you yeah. were saying it that's yeah. that's what you kind of want as yeah. a i don't know yeah that he's not going to come in and make all these suggestions that you don't want to make yeah. anyway right yeah exactly he's he's so you you had a rich idiot who was happy to let you do whatever yeah and you ruined it out of basically a front that somebody this idiot was allowed to be so rich. Yeah. Well, it was it was it was the head of production at Warner Brothers. I don't know if he personally yeah. was rich, but he had the the money of Warner Brothers coming down the pipe at him, and he he's he, so yeah. It's it's this is definitely a guy who, and I mean, it has to self be self destructive. Yeah, self destructive. And to be fair, Hollywood has always f sounded like a place that would drive me insane with some of the stuff that happens there. Um, and some of the, like, I could absolutely see getting, you know, bouncing off the walls at some of the insanity of, of Hollywood. It does need to be said, Ellison's had, in a way, a very long career. Like, I don't know how he keeps being part of the Hollywood, you know, uh, 
glitterati, but like like in in the documentary Dreams with Sharp Teeth, you know, the first thing you do is is him hanging out with Robin Williams and Robin Williams telling stories about him and like all these people who know and love him in Hollywood, even though he's never really technically had a screenplay produced it's kind of like so well he's had a lot of tv screenplay tv yeah it's well even then though like it's the outer limits of star trek and then what else is there you know like eh, babylon 5 a bunch oh I guess and, like a, a bunch film, and yeah. a bunch of like just that doesn't uh, hack count stuff, no I hack so... stuff and a bunch of hack stuff for you know like crime procedurals and stuff huh. yeah it's it's an it's Star Lost would have been really interesting. That was a that was going to be his like magnum opus on TV, but it it really didn't go well, unfortunately. And that wasn't entirely his fault either. But but again, it was always it was him leaping in to say you did this wrong, and you know he could have just let it slide a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's one of those that he managed to he did manage to endear himself, and I think it's easy to see why hearing him talk, he's very charismatic. Right. Well, he's to, got great uh, stories, of, you know. It's... Yeah, to a lot of people that uh, often kept uh, providing uh, chances for him, but he also did torpedo a lot of uh, chances that would have made him more successful than he was because of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. something. And one of the things that was like, yeah, investing just uh, a bit of the, uh, what people criticize of Rick and Morty, I'm a genius, I'm above needing people skills thing. It's like, if he'd stepped back from that, he would have been able to get a lot more done. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, at a point you have to question, well, if that's what you need to get your work done, how smart are you for deliberately not doing that? Yeah, self-defeating. Again, I, yeah. I believe the director, I think after they made Dreams with Sharp Teeth, the director said, or Ellison actually watched it, and he said, you should have talked to more of my enemies. There isn't there isn't enough pushback against me. You should have talked to my enemies. And, and uh the director said, "Well, Harlan, you're your own worst enemy." Yeah. So that kind of that kind of subs about. Like I ha like, there's a ton we could just talk about on, like, what a boy and his dog, even though we did not like it, and talked a lot off camera about why we didn't like it and why it didn't work. Uh, influenced like a whole swath of right post-apocalyptic literature and a lot of video games mm -hmm. that came from it there's uh fallout lisa the fallen mm -hmm. which uh i lisa the fallen has a similar sort of setup it's in a post-apocalyptic world where there's no women and the main character discovers an uh infant girl and decides to raise her secretly as his son and I think it actually deals with, like, a lot of the ideas that a boy and his dog put forth in terms of, like, uncontrolled adolescent violence a lot better. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's sort of, he. it's one of the classic, you broach the subject and then someone else outstrips it. I mean, I think Mad Max, too. Just... The, yeah. Just the idea of post-apocalyptic. Like I say, when we watched, when we re when we did Canticle for Leibowitz, it shows the apocalypse, and yeah, it says mankind has fallen into savagery, but it's a very dispassionate view of that. We don't, we don't see that much of sort of the barbarism because we see it through the eyes of the monks. And other stories have, like in the fifties, that dealt with, you know, post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear war stuff. It, there was a certain detached, you know, chin-stroking idea of it. This is one that makes you feel like, yeah, this is how horrible it would be if society collapsed and was completely, you know, out to lunch and there was absolutely no humanity left in anyone anymore. Um, and that's, I think, that became the guiding star of post-apocalypse stories for a long time. And then, again, Mad Max kind of cemented it, I think, uh, going yeah. forward. Uh, I do actually just want to say that it's like, I feel like I wound up playing Devil's Advocate a lot. There's a lot about Ellison I just hate, and I hated this story. And this story had one of my favorite things, which is an animal that's a people, and I hated the dog, which is almost impossible to do. <laughs> and uh, Ellison is hard to talk about because it's one of those things where it goes, what, like you pointed out, there's the whole like new sci-fi movement that was so much pushback against the sanitization of the 50s. And if he was just somebody who wrote that, it would be easier to talk about. Oh, he's a product of his times, but he lived long enough to be a product of our times too. Mm -hmm. That which makes it like a weird thing of talking about putting him in context of his day, and also he stuck around. Yeah, yeah. 
and still had fights on the internet and still did some shitty stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he was a, he was, in some ways he's the ultimate boomer because he did like all the stuff that we like mythologize boomers for. And he himself did a lot of the mythologizing, but like, like he had all these wild, I'm going to go out and see the world and have, you know, and find myself. And, and then he was with, like I say, Martin Luther King and he, and he did all these very, you know, noble things uh but then he also became a guy who was just like well the kids today don't understand how great we were and how what good things we did and how you know like it, it, as you say he he then had to continue picking fights everyone had yeah, to bow down to his genius a, you know? yeah but he's less of a boomer and more of a doomer because his thing there <laughs> said it's like we went out and did all those great things and it didn't f***ing matter none of it changed anything he's a doom boomer <laughs> yeah um we swore a lot in this episode. I, yeah, I don't there's going to be a lot of editing. There's going to be a lot yeah, of bleeping. Is, yeah, <laughs> which is appropriate for Ellison. He'd approve. Yeah, I was going to say like I I had a feeling there would be a lot of swearing in this episode, uh, but that's an Ellison episode. It's a, it's completely yeah. appropriate. He wouldn't he wouldn't have wanted to sanitize uh, but, anything. But yeah, if despite a lot of negative things we said about this story in Ellison, if you want to read uh, stuff by him that's seen as good. Uh, um, Dangerous Visions, yeah. the anthology series he did, which is a collaboration with a bunch of the people mm. seen as like yeah. the masters of sci-fi in like the mid-century and yeah. it was a very good anthology. Yeah, we didn't even talk about uh, The Last but... Dangerous Visions which then became a huge... That's another thing where Ellison did something amazing and great and it devolved into this <laughs> horrible thing that, that loomed over sci-fi. You know about that, right? The Last Dangerous Visions? I only read the first one. This is actually a controversy I missed. Yeah, well, the second one... Part of the thing about uh, Ellison is that you could follow his career pretty closely and still miss a lot of scandals and <laughs> a lot of just f***ing well, tantrums. Well, what happened... Damn it, I did it. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. No, we, he, what happened was he did Dangerous Visions. It's it's groundbreaking. Huge. He does, uh, again, Dangerous Visions, which people feel was a little bit more bloated and a little bit more self-indulgent, but still pretty good. Then he said he was going to do the last Dangerous Vision, which was going to just have every writer and science fiction in it and just going to be huge and blah, blah, blah. And then it never came out and it never came out and it literally sat on the shelf for 30 years. And writers like... And he was, like, lying to writers, saying that it was going to get out any time now, and it didn't. People were like, that could have launched my career, and it didn't get launched because Ellison oh. sat on the story forever. Christopher Priest, uh, the guy who wrote The Prestige, he wrote a, an entire pa uh, well, a, a pamphlet, but basically a book uh, called The Book on the Edge of Forever, writing about it and all the, the stuff he, he criticized Ellison in regards to that and and how like people would say well is are you going to release a story and he'd get really angry at them and be like of course it's coming out whoa what are you crazy of course i'm going to release this how dare you how dare you impugn my honor and then like he died with it unpublished and if it had been published it would have been like 13 volumes long like the the size of it would have been insane like it's clearly something he undertook something Jesus that was not going to happen Christ. basically <laughs> so yeah and literally some of the authors who contributed to it died and it's like their book their work was never published because it was in Ellison's book that never didn't get off the shelf and now um what's his name Babylon 5 guy J Michael Straczynski has actually said cuz he's the executor of Ellison's estate so he's actually said I'm going to make an attempt to get some of this into print but I don't know if it's going to happen or not anyway so but yes <laughs> may have to release it into creative commons in a very cruel irony yeah <laughs> which he would have hated uh but yeah the dangerous vision anthology at least the first two before it degraded into a cluster f um i have no mouth i must scream which was all actually expanded into a point and click adventure game written and by ellison and he voices uh am the malevolent ai and it's a scene is it's a very good and very disturbing video game it's true to the story and expands a lot of things in a way that makes the original better uh -huh. um and what repent called, repent harlequin the tiktok man yeah. the outer limits his Star screenplay yeah. for the irobot movie is very good yeah i never actually got a chance to read that but yeah it sounded really cool yeah was yeah. will smith in it no uh. yeah uh, there's also a couple uh, books like uh, a couple of stories like Strange Wine and um, 
Pretty Many Muggy, uh, Pretty Maggy Money Eyes. And a lot of his nonfiction is really good. He wrote a lot of essays. He wrote a lot of criticism for a science fiction magazine in the early 80s. So he was actually one of the movie reviewers for a science fiction magazine for a while. And he wrote some really cool things about movies. Of course, he had very strong opinions about everything. Uh, he was the one who linked Ghostbusters and Lovecraft. It was the first one to do that, apparently. Um, yeah, so a uh, lot of lot of interesting writing out there that he would have... Uh, he, he couldn't stop writing, that's for sure. Okay, well, uh, the death bird is circling on this particular episode, so it's time for us to say adieu, children. We have been Adam Prosser, the lurker in the podcast at the end of the internet, and Philip Rice, the devil with a glass eye. Special thanks to our guest, James Ng, Riley English, coming at you. Oh, shoot. Can I plug a thing? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I have a comic with Charlotte Finn published on the internet right now at whatisbrandecho.com, and it's a sci-fi ghost story where there's some interesting stuff actually about creative rights and people's legacies in it so that ties into sort of the theme of the episode yes yeah it's a great comic i i yep. strongly recommend it very good um and to uh also thanks to jack Fierick, a music writing program that gains sentience and is threatening to nuke the world also thanks to our producer engineer and web host alex ross who keeps all the clocks ticking in perfect synchronicity uh, just a reminder, we have both the Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. And if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or go to neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what dash mad dash universe for the links. You can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or Spear Hawk with an F underscore for Philip. So from the edge of forever, this is What Mad Universe signing off once more. <laughs>